Hey, everybody. Thanks for downloading this episode of The Agile Wire. A few quick plugs. We had some inspiration leading up to this episode and decided to run a few experiments of our own. Firstly, we started a Twitter account, at Agile Wire, to create better forms of dialogue with the community. Secondly, we started a YouTube channel, and we'll be putting the recordings up there as well. Lastly, if you're interested, Jeff Boobles and friend of the show, Chad Beyer, will be running a professional Scrum product runner advanced course in July. It's one of only two running virtually in North America. Anyway, Jeff and I hope you're hanging in there and keeping your spirits up. Cheers. Welcome to the Agile Wire, where professional Scrum trainers Jeff Boobles and Jeff Molesky discuss agile topics. Now, here are your hosts, Jeff Boobles and Jeff Molesky. And we are recording. All right, Mr. Boobles, kick us off, man. All right. So this week on the Agile Wire, we've got Rich Sheridan. Rich uh, comes to us from Menlo. Um, he's the author of Joy Inc. He's, um, I don't know, I would say that you're touted as one of the like leading Agile companies out there. When when people talk about what does an Agile company look like, in my mind, I think of, I think of Menlo Innovations. And so it's great to have Rich on. We're going to talk about how things have, are changing and and this new world that we're in and, um, you know, with people going more remote and um, and see where the conversation goes. So, Rich, I guess um, starting off there, we I know you were just saying before we started recording, like you're getting lots of questions about, you know, how is Menlo working? Because um, when I when Jeff and I toured there, um, we saw everything was physical on the walls. There was physical tools that people, very tactile things that people use for planning and organizing people paired and they were always, you know, really closely working together um use this high voice technology or is that the term high voice uh high speed voice technology yeah, yes yeah high speed voice technology to communicate to the whole entire company right where it just you know you bring everybody in and like hey, let's have a conversation um obviously those things have changed with moving to uh going remote um but what do you what are you doing now how are you handling things yeah just because not everybody who's listening will maybe can imagine what Menlo was like pre pre pandemic. I'll give you just a visual picture as you described. Uh, we might have been one of the more pro COVID environments uh, that you can imagine. Fortunately, nobody got sick at Menlo from uh, from the pandemic, uh, which is good news for all of us. But um, we are all in a room together. I sit out in the room with everybody else. We work shoulder to shoulder. We work two people to one computer. They're sharing a keyboard and a mouse. Uh, we pass around a two-horned plastic Viking helmet at our daily stand-up meeting, so everybody's touching the same object as it goes around the 50 or 60 people uh, who are on the team, and, and even our visitors join in. You probably, when you yeah. visited, joined our stand-up meeting. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, obviously all of those constructs are exactly the opposite of what we should be doing right now. And uh, so, uh, you know, as of about March 20th, everybody was home, everybody working remotely. Uh, and now the question is, how do you effectively uh, continue the cultural norms of Menlo in this 100% remote work environment? And uh, we're using technology, of course. Uh, we still pair. Uh, all of the work at Menlo is done to people uh, essentially working on the same task at the same time. When they were in Menlo, they were at the same computer sharing the keyboard and mouse. Now they're both home. And uh, that remote pairing is being facilitated by screen sharing, audio, video, uh, and so on. Um, fortunately for us, we've been doing remote pairing for continuously for the last seven years. 
typically with our customers who would form half of the remote pair, whatever city they were in. So we were very adept at the remote pairing stuff. We just never done it at the scale. And the other part that's, you know, weird, but working is that even when we were remote pairing, one half of the pair was in that room I was describing. So we were all still within earshot and eye shot of one another. We could still use Hey Menlo to call an all company meeting. Our, our, as you said, our high speed voice technology worked. And so we're finding other constructs. Uh, the good news is, I, I think when you have a culture that is as adaptable as ours has been over the last 20 years, uh, guess what? Uh, we, <laughs> we had to really lean on that muscle to, um, to get things working the way we needed to. And so, um, we had anticipated this happening. Uh, you know, we were watching what was happening in China, what was happening in Italy, and so on. So we knew, you know, there was no way this wasn't going to land on our doorstep. And so in February, we'd done some practicing with this, which is very typical of us, you know, run the experiment type of practicing. Yep. So we took whole project teams and just sent them home mm-hmm. and said, guys, for the next couple of days, you're going to work in this project from home. We're going to find out what equipment you didn't take with you, uh, whether your bandwidth at home is as good as it needs to be and all that sort of thing. So we had done a few sort of trial runs of this bugging out kind of uh, thing. And so, and then when the national emergency was declared on March 13th, um, we asked the team, you know, basically this was before the governor of our state had uh, issued a stay at home order. you know, we, we were checking with the team members saying who's comfortable staying here, who, who really wants to be home because they feel safer there. And probably with, within Monday or Tuesday of that first week, March 16th, 17th, um, 60 to 70% of the team was already home. Uh, we were learning how to do our daily stand-up meeting virtually mm-hmm. uh, when it was hybrid, when there was 40% in the office and 60% at home we would just make a computer, one of the stand-up circle team members, uh, and but it had a Zoom meeting with everybody on it. And then uh, we stumbled and bumbled and fumbled along with who's next because you can't really tell like you can when you're standing in a circle. Yeah. Uh, so we've created constructs for helping us through that, and we keep getting better at it. And now we do a virtual stand-up every morning at 10 o'clock. And uh, so, um, you know, yeah, it's all it's all working uh, fortunately, but, uh, but very different than our typical environments all day. I love how you were talking about the experiment that you ran where it's like, Hey, we know this is coming. Let's just all just try working from home. Um, when this was all starting back in February, I had some clients and I kind of suggested they try the same thing. Like, but I was like even more drastic, like, let's just put, send an email out at like 6am, put a note on the door, like doors are locked today. We're practicing for COVID-19 if this hits and like, this is how it might actually happen. And you can't come to work today. Everybody needs to work from home and just see what we run into. Cause it's better to find that out earlier. Like, oh, we need yep. monitors. We need keyboards. We need better internet, mm-hmm. whatever the thing is. Um, well, we can get that stuff now then months down the road when that stuff's all scarce. Um, and one client took me up on it and they did it and it, it improved a lot of things out. We got a lot more, um, infrastructure in place before we had to go and do this. And so it was, it was a really valuable experiment. Um, we're also talking with some of the clients I'm working with right now of when we go back to work, cause I already starting to plan that for this summer. Like we need to have maybe a test where it's like randomly, you know, Sometime next week, the doors are going to close and everybody has to work back mm-hmm. from home again because we don't know if this is going to spin back up into the future. Yeah. And we need to keep both, you know, 
you know, our current location and our at home workspaces working at, you know, at a top uh, performance. So, Well, and we're imagining as we plan on coming back, whatever that means, whatever that is, uh, we're not going to do it quickly. Uh, we're going to be, uh, that'll probably be one of the places where uh, we will not be a first adopter of anything. Uh, we're going to stay at home, watch what happens. Uh, we're watching very carefully what's going on in Korea and and the opening reopenings in Europe and that sort of thing, uh, and um, and then plan accordingly. But our assumption is, for the next couple of years, we will at least be a hybrid in the office work from home model. And like you're saying, there may be moments of second waves, third waves, and fourth waves where we're just like, okay, everybody home again. Let's mm-hmm. let's go through the exercise again. And of course, we've done it once, so it won't be quite as unnerving as it was the first time. What I, I was going to chime in with real quick, it was sounding like um, almost like you're running that chaos monkey, I think is, is what it's called. This is a software that purposely kind of putzes with your, your DevOps pipeline and your deployment pipeline to randomly turn things on and off just so that you can test your resiliency and how quick it, it, you are at actually fixing those things. And it just makes you, um, well, in the DevOps world, it makes your, your deployments more resilient to, you know, if something breaks, we can quickly adapt, we can quickly get things out there. But really, you're just kind of doing that as, as an organization, right? We're, we're purposely trying to break things early to test our ability. So when the, the actual situations arise, uh, we, we've already kind of tested these, these ideas out and have a, uh, a track record of being able to respond. So that, that's pretty cool. Um, well, I, I, I like was, your thinking. I, I like the thinking that um, maybe all of this is just a ruse and it's just a big chaos monkey for the world that says we're going to, we got to see what would happen if a pandemic happens. Maybe, maybe it really hasn't happened. Maybe it's just a test. So, and tomorrow they'll tell us, okay, we were just kidding. You can all go back to work now. (laughs) (laughs) That would be nice. Um, But, you know, actually I was, there's definitely been some, some nice things uh, about working from home. So it's not kind of a, a jury picture, but I was, I was really curious about, um, well, I don't want to question stack here. I've got a lot in my, in my head here, but how has this affected specifically your, your high-tech anthropologist? So I would imagine that getting in front of that customer, really understanding them kind of is a critical piece of a critical piece of that is being able to go and meet with your customer and understand their environment and actually live a day in their shoes and getting, uh, you know, that full understanding and grasp of them and how they're going to use the product, et cetera. And now all of a sudden you've got to try and accomplish that, that all virtually. So I'm curious, how how has that affected that role in your organization? Well, and and I'm going to just torture your question a little bit more because it's, it's doubly virtual. We're doing that work virtually, and we're doing it with people who themselves are working virtually. Oh, yeah. So, <laughs> so it's kind of strange, right? We're doing high-tech anthropology now in people's homes who are themselves on stay-at-home orders uh, where they're working. And so um, <laughs> I, I will simply uh, uh, highlight the um, the spirit and energy of the team at Menlo, which I just – I personally – uh, revel in because I need their energy right now. And when we uh, landed a new client in Beaumont, Texas, um, <clears throat> and uh, even just the sales process had to be virtual, of course, we'd never, I've never met these folks down there. They had heard about us through uh, another contact and so on. And here we are and we're all kind of thinking like, 
how can we land a new deal? How can we do the even the proposal creation about how complex is this project? And then what will the project look like? Because as you say, the first phases of our projects are typically with our high-tech anthropologists who are studying the people we're ultimately going to serve with the software we're going to design and build. And Molly, one of our longtime high-tech anthropologists, kind of leans in, she goes, this will be so exciting to figure out how to do this. <laughs> and, and all I'm thinking is, this will never work. We won't be able to do this. And she's like, oh, no, we'll figure it out. Yeah, like, um, you know, the high-tech anthropology piece of memo is one of our most unique calling cards. Um, <clears throat> it goes to the heart of our mission at Menlo, which is to end human suffering in the world as it relates to technology. And uh, ultimately, the people we want to end the suffering for, the people who one day use the software we're designing and building. And we believe the only way to do that well is to understand, truly understand the people we're serving. And we do that by going out into the world and observing them in their native environment, learning their vocabulary, their workflow, their goals, their, uh, you know, their habits, uh, learning about the human part of things. That's why we call it anthropology, because anthropology is a study of humans. Mm -hmm. And of course, uh, that is a very in-person, get on airplanes, go there, spend a few days there, bring that information back and that sort of thing. And of course, none of that's going to happen. And even if you could get on an airplane, I'm not sure our team would want to get on an airplane right now. Sure. Uh, Understandable. Reason, yeah. <laughs> reason airlines are down 95% is even if you can do it, which you can, you don't want to mm -hmm. for the obvious reasons. And so uh, I, I think as a... Um, uh, you know, as I think through that, uh, the, the most heartening moment for me was when one of our high-tech anthropologists, Molly, said, oh, this will be so exciting to figure out how to do this. And I thought, oh, my gosh, thank you, Molly. Thank you for uh, that spirit and energy, which says we can figure this out. And they have. And it's working. I don't I, I think it's I think everybody's right now looking at. Is this the new normal? Should we just keep going this way? Is there a possibility we've just found the new way of working? I don't sense that from my team at this point. I don't sense anybody saying, I think this is going so well, we should just work like this forever. I think it's more like we can adapt, we can make this work, and let's hope we can get back to something closer to what it used to be. Probably not exactly, but, um, but this idea of always virtual is not but it probably gives you some options, right? Like, because now you're like, mm -hmm. hey, we have done the high-end anthropology remote. Like, there's somebody in Asia that wants us to do that. Maybe we don't want to fly over to Asia. Like, maybe we're open to trying an experiment now because we've proven some things out that we can do, you know, we can do this yep. in a remote fashion. So it might open and up some we, options. Yeah, and we just did uh, those kind of visits uh, down to South America just recently for um, a company that makes heart-lung machines. And we had to see how they worked them down there. And in the past, we would have considered putting people on airplanes and flying down to Buenos Aires and that sort of thing. And this time it was like, nope, they just stayed in their home and, and did it remotely. And again, it's working. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I, I, do, I think you're right. I think there will be new pages in the playbook from here on out that say, you know, because quite frankly, I think even I was talking with somebody who's on a nonprofit board and they're doing, of course, all their board meetings virtually. And I think in the past, if somebody said, hey, uh, our meeting's on Wednesday night at seven o'clock, and you said, you know, could you could you make it so I could tie in remotely? You know, there's that old, you know, that that kind of meme that people, oh, you so say you just want to phone it in. 
you, you don't actually want to come. You're not as committed. And now, of course, everybody's doing this and they find out, huh, so I don't have to like leave my house 45 minutes before the meeting, drive in, find a parking place, get to the meeting room, sit down, spend 90 minutes in the meeting and reverse that 45 minutes the other way. I can do it from home. And, and quite frankly, I think a lot of those kind of organizations are seeing higher participation rates, uh, more, maybe more relaxed people who didn't have to rush out after dinner or something for a seven o'clock meeting. Mm-hmm. And so I, I think we are, as a society, A, learning things about how to do this, but B, also readjusting our um, social norms interpretation of, is this appropriate? Yeah, I was working with a team just this week, and um, they had people that were partially remote, so they're partially distributed teams before this all hit. And they never had video on like they would use different tools, but they never ever had video on. Once this hit, uh, we started making it just kind of a way that we work. We always put video on like you can't see facial expressions. You can't get the connection that you normally have. It's just very, there's a different level of communication, right? When you don't have the video on and now everybody has it on. And they have said that, Hey, when we go back to work, we're going to keep video on, even though, you know, 70% of us might be in the same room, everybody will have their video on for the people that are remote. And I think that's only going to help those people be better team members because they're going to have better connections Mm -hmm. with everybody else on the team going forward. So if anything, it's changed that team or, you know, some of those teams that are doing that learn these new norms of how to, how to be a better, you know, distributed team member. Well, you know, you probably saw at least one Menlo dog when you were in visiting. I don't know if there were dogs in the office that day. Um, uh, Unbeknownst to us until all of this hit, there are actually cats of Menlo, too. They they never came into the office, but boy, they love coming into the video uh, meetings. You know, suddenly you see this cat like crawling across somebody's (laughs) shoulders and then you're like, oh, what's your cat's name? And that sort of thing. And I think, you know, I think there is actually, uh, as you said, there are good things coming out of this, no question. Uh, We're seeing people's lives. We're seeing their family, their children. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, I think the hardest part for our younger team members who have young families is how do they balance? Because the child care is closed, the schools are closed, the kids are home, the kids are hungry, uh, they're crying in the background because their siblings are fighting or something like that. But it's real. Right. I mean, it's that recognition that, you know, we are we are people. We are people inside of our own communities at home and our families and that sort of thing. There's real things going on in our lives. And so I think it has humanized our team just a little bit more. And I think we were pretty humanized to begin with. Yeah, it's interesting you bring that up. I was just teaching a class uh, probably about two or three weeks ago now was a, a scrum master class. And two gentlemen in there, and one of them had a had a four month old, and one had a six month old. And I, I use this example whenever now. So before I teach a class, I always do a pre check, just making sure that the, from a technology standpoint, we can see each other, we can hear each other. Um, no no big latency issues, no big background noise issues. And I always end the call um, talking, and I say I, I just want to touch on uh, professionalism for just a minute. And uh, when, when I was talking about professionalism, I'm not talking Zoom bombing. I'm not worried about that in, in any of the courses. I'm just, uh, what I articulate is most of the people are on shelter in place orders. And some people's shelter in place is a little bit more ideal than other people's shelter in place. And I talk about these two gentlemen. And, um, you know, 
those kiddos made some guest appearances over the course of those two days of training, right? And and of course, they were respectful. They muted the microphone when the kiddos were around. But one of the guys was like doing overhead presses with the kid by the legs. And <laughs> I think that highlights, you know, uh, the male versus female role of, of, of raising kids uh, and what they care to do with them. But, but nonetheless, um, you know, as long as you don't detract from the training, I don't care. And this, just take a moment to um, extend the same courtesy to the other students that you would like extended to you if your home life situation wasn't as ideal as you would like it to be. And um, I, I like ending with that because it's just a, a reminder to, you know, be courteous to one another, to be respectful to one another. We talk about the values in Scrum and whatnot, but it is just an excellent opportunity to live that. And I think even when you or especially in, in a switch situation like yours, where that culture has already come up and we were always working with one another, we've got to be respectful of that other individual. I think you you even articulate as those kindergarten skills, right? Like yeah. learning to share with one another, learning to be kind with one another. Um, I, I, I just, I feel like that's only from an outsider's perspective, but that's something that your culture just has to kind of embrace. Otherwise you'd kind of weed those people out naturally. Just, they, they just wouldn't, do well in that type of environment. And I think that translates really well to a, a distributed uh, environment where you got to keep that in mind even more so probably than when you were in person with other people. Yeah. And, you know, we're looking at all the different kinds of constructs we need to add now because we've lost that intimacy of being in the room together and the casual conversations that occur because we're all mm -hmm. together every day. And just yesterday we began a new series at Menlo of, uh, Thursday lunches with Rich and James and uh, James is my co-founder because the team, I mean, quite frankly, I mean, what I appreciate about them is they want to know how we're doing through all of this. They know this is hard for us. They, they see what we're working to do to, you know, to keep them together, to keep them fed, uh, uh, you know, the, the work we did to get our PPP loan and the work we're doing to watch our financials and land new deals and all that sort of thing. And so, uh, in many ways, yesterday wasn't, there was nothing planned to it in terms of an agenda or anything like that. We just all got together like we do. It's not unusual for us to all be in a group gathering together. And the conversation just flowed. It flowed like it normally would. And uh, the team asked James and I some very sort of deeply personal questions about how are we personally dealing with this. And uh, afterwards, the, the heartfelt emails I got from team members who said how much they appreciated uh, both that we were willing to share and, and quite frankly, that they could see what, I mean, they could imagine it, but hearing it firsthand, mm -hmm. uh, how we're personally adjusting to this is just really gratifying from a team perspective. And I think those kind of constructs uh, have to be added in, you know, because you lose something. You lose something when you're all together. So now the question is, what's the best thing we can replace it with? And so for the time being, for the next several weeks at least, um, we are going to just every Thursday, everybody who wants to come can come. Uh, and I think we had nearly 100% attendance uh, uh, yesterday. Uh, they can just check in with us, ask the questions they really want to ask. We'll share, you know, if you know, and probably on the tour, uh, we're willing to share pretty much everything with the world. We're certainly willing to share it with each other. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've done some of that stuff with clients and we've found like, oh, you get a big room and it's great. Like if you want to convey a message, but then you have one audio channel where like if you were in a big group, you might go off and have a little side conversation here, here, but with one audio channel being remote, that doesn't work so well. So we started using breakout rooms 
in zoom and break people mm-hmm. into smaller rooms and then break them back and kind of like a speed dating almost like let's spend five minutes and we're just gonna put you in a room to talk to somebody like if you want to be a part of this and then we're gonna bring you back and put you in a different random room with a different person and let you talk to that person and and it just keeps the connections going in the organization um another tool that i've i've used is um uh, there's a, a coffee tool a randomized coffee tool that's for slack and you just it's like a plugin that you edit and you, anybody who wants to join this channel it just randomizes like who you're going to have coffee with that week and it just says you know hmm. you're gonna have coffee with this person now this week and this person this week and so it just you know keeps those connections going um and you know maybe you wouldn't have a conversation with molly every week or maybe for months because she's working on mm-hmm. something else but now yeah you know it gives you uh that space to do that so i I think it's really important to create that space during this too. Like, however you do it, it just needs it needs to happen, right? Yeah, and we we run won, won a, we've won a few deals in the last several weeks, which is just <laughs> yay! <laughs> you can still win deals in this uh, crazy environment. And uh, the first one that came in, uh, uh, we just started texting each other pictures of wine glasses and beer bottles and we were just toasting each other via text and uh the other construct we've created is um uh, there's often been times where a handful of us would go out to uh uh a local mexican place for margaritas after work on a friday uh we're continuing that uh we just don't go out we just stay home we get the margarita mix from costco and we (laughs) <laughs> some, some don't like margaritas so they bring whatever the heck they're gonna bring uh and it was funny my co-founder and i one of the things we love to do is golf and uh we're running a golf league together we're not very good at it but we enjoy the getting outside and boy we are golfing more now than we've ever golfed uh at this point in the season but uh that friday margarita thing interfered with james and my golf so we went golfing and as a few others uh, gathered and uh, we got 18 holes in. We came back home to our respective homes. And my wife is a part of this uh, group because she works at Menlo. And it was like 8.30 at night. And they're still, they're still together. They're still talking. <laughs> Guys, you're still doing this? We played 18 holes of golf while you started this thing. And uh, they went for another hour. So, uh, you know, and I think those kind of outlets are just really, really good. Because mm-hmm. I think... You know, I mean, work is work is work still for everybody. It's it's hard. You know, you, there's pressure. There's, um, you know, the pressure to perform, the pressure to not fail, the pressure to, you know, hit a deadline or get stuff done. And uh, you know, you need those kind of relief valves. And I think we need to be careful as leaders to consider that we we've lost some of those natural relief valves because getting together after work in a, a kind of let your hair down situation and uh, just talk about stuff, it's kind of gone, right? You're just, you're home all the time. And in fact, I think that, uh, I remember this, I, I'm going to show you something here, guys. Uh, forgive the uh, the little twist of the monitor here for a second, but I'm going to show you where I am because it's kind of historically significant. Okay. This is my basement. Okay. 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 Now, you, you got to admit, I've done a pretty good job of turning this into a little video studio, right? Uh-huh. Yeah. But, but that, um, but that space you just looked at, oh, I gotta, I gotta get, get back to my, don't chop my head off, please. Um, uh, that, that room you just saw was the original location of Menlo. We started in my basement. 
Okay. We, we were here about four months until my wife finally got tired of us and kicked us out of the house. My neighbors were starting to get concerned about the number of cars that were showing up every week. And, um, but, uh, um, I discovered way back then when I was working from home, right? Cause I'd get up in the morning and I'd come downstairs and I was at work and I found out, man, this mentally, this isn't working for me. I need this sort of physical break. I think there's a advantage to getting in a car, driving to an office and doing the reverse on the way home because you kind of compartmentalize work then as you're moving. Yeah. And so what I used to do then, uh, and I, I do a little bit of this now as much as you can in this kind of environment is I would get up in the morning, get showered, get dressed, and then I'd get on my bike and I'd ride downtown. I'd go to a coffee shop uh, and have a cup of coffee and then get on my bike and ride back home. And so it had the dual effect of giving me a little bit of exercise, but it also felt in some ways like I was going to work. Mm-hmm. And I think we I think we need those kind of constructs when home is your workplace. And you need some way to like separate in your mind that I'm not at work right now. Yeah. Otherwise you can't turn off your work brain and that can be very mentally debilitating. I think. Yeah. I've seen a lot of people that just keep working like late into the night. Cause it's like, mm-hmm. I'm at home. I just had supper and I'll go back to work. And it's like, no, no, like spend time with your family. Like just yeah. because you're in the same spot as where you work doesn't mean you have to go back to work. Cause there's stuff to do. Like, Oh, wait, you know? Yeah, our pairing construct has always helped with that because if your pair partner is in there, then you're done working. So you'd have to literally collude with someone to work <laughs> extra hours. And, uh, and we don't, we don't, um, we don't reward that. I mean, people get actually, we pay hourly. So people get paid more if they work, uh, more hours. But, um, but there's nothing in our culture that says working more gets you greater uh attaboy awards or there's there's no constructive memo for that so we're we've always been very much a 40-hour work week kind of company obviously you got to break that every now and then when you're doing traveling or the remote stuff but uh but there i think there is definitely ability for people to just shut down um you know go start baking bread or whatever they're doing at home now so yeah my my wife has been well, I, I shouldn't just throw throw the, the the bone over to her. We've both been kind of struggling with that separation since my my office is also my my play area. So I play a lot of video games, and it's generally mm-hmm. in front of the computer, and that happens to be where I'm also doing a lot of work. And so it's it's I think it's easier when you're like you were talking about when you're in a separate space, right? Like this is my work area, and this is where I go. And now my my mindset is I'm going to be doing work over here is my play area, and my mindset is I'm going to be doing play. But now those two are the the same. So it's a little bit harder to separate what I'm doing and what I'm doing it um, and really just kind of turning it off. Obviously, I'm not playing video games when I'm when I'm training a class, but there's tends to be more bleed over afterwards where, oh, let me go ahead and update this information over here and, and hard to separate it. So um, I, I know I've personally been struggling with that for the past six weeks. In fact, I was talking with Jeff about this earlier where um, typically with, with the job, I, I travel quite a bit. So I uh, I, I listen to probably almost three hours of podcasts a day. Now they're at 1.5 X. So it's really only like an hour and a half to two hours of listening, but I still typically listen to two books a month on, on audible. Um, and I, I haven't finished reading uh, or listening to pro or sense and respond, which was the last book that I was, I was listening to. Mm-hmm. It's maybe a seven hour listen on audible. And that's nothing compared with what I normally listen to. Right. And I haven't finished that in six weeks now. And so I still haven't, gotten into the 
into the right habit of what I should be doing and when I should be doing it at home. Um, and I'm the type when I open up my, you know, my feed of all the podcasts that I need to listen to. And I see there's like 15 of them there. I'm just inundated. Like I just, yep. I just shut it down. Cause I'm now just starting to right. think you out of there. You can feel it on your shoulders, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so that, that, um, uh, that scheduling, that that just that that regiment isn't something that I've yet effectively built for myself. And in fact, again, I was literally just talking with Jeff about this before we started recording. Um, but that's one of my big goals now for this weekend is to try and mentally reset. I've done a good job of in the morning, I get up, I do my stretches, um, you know, just because I can't go to the gym anymore. But I've got to start being a little bit more practical and regimented about how I approach things to get myself back into that state. And I mean, tools are good, but I think there's a little bit of self-ownership to this, a person needs to step up and kind of take accountability for this to, to fix themselves and then be able to transition into work and then play and, and, and whatnot. So. Yep. No, I, I agree. And I think, you know, <laughs> it, it feels like forever already that we've been doing this, right? It, it feels like, holy cow, this has been going on for years. Uh, but it's only been 10 weeks uh, for most of us. And um, I, I think we have to give ourselves a little bit of space to say, we, we do still have to work on this. We do still have to figure this out. This isn't something that uh, we knew how to do. And, uh, you know, and I think even just becoming sort of hyper self-aware, right? Like you're feeling right now. It's like, boy, I don't, I know I need a structure to my day different than what I've been doing because it doesn't feel healthy. I'm not working out as much. I'm not getting everything in I used to do. And so I think, you know, I know for my wife and I, um, uh, <laughs> boy, we have seen more uh, neighborhoods in our two to three mile range of our house than we have in the 40 years we've lived here because we're spending a lot of time on walks. Uh, I have two daughters, I have three daughters, but two of them live really close by. Uh, just meeting them socially distanced at the park with their dogs and going for walks in the park with them has been really healthy. Uh, so I think, you know, we, I we keep, I think each of us is keeping a, a mindful eye for where can we unplug? Uh, you know, <laughs> I, uh, I have a personal fitness instructor that has continued to work with me just by video now by Skype. And, uh, uh, when I worked out with him on, uh, on Wednesday, uh, we did no workout. We just talked mm -hmm. and I told him what I was going through, that I was having trouble sleeping, that I was feeling some aches and pains that felt like more than I would have expected. And he started telling me about how the stress in your body manifest, how's the stress in your mind manifests itself in your body. And he gave me some great advice. He said, right after this, go take a bath. I said, what? He says, a bath, Epsom salt bath. And uh, I'm like, I haven't taken a bath for probably 20 years. You know? And so I did, I did what he told me and it was great. And it really, boy, it, it really helped. I didn't take any electronics. I took some music and that was it. I wasn't like trying to catch up on email because I think, you know, that's the other temptation, right? Oh, I can check email while I'm doing this other thing that doesn't require anything else. But, uh, but it was a really pleasant experience. And I think it really did help my, not only my mindset, but my body. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, and I think we've got to be watching for all of that stuff. I think uh, taking care of ourselves individually is just as important as taking care of our team. Yeah, I agree. And that's one of the things I've always loved about Menlo is like the human connection, the human side, like you guys don't like separate that. It's just all one person. And, uh, I guess I just love, uh, how you always talk about that. And, and just at this, at this time, I bet you like everybody in your organization just, um, feels like one team and where this could be something that could divide a team or divide an organization. Um, and so I think that's yeah. really, really great. Things I, have, I have, thank you. Um, I, I agree. Uh, I not sure I even was, um, uh, I could fully anticipate how much the cultural stuff we've worked on for the last 19 years was going to be this just incredibly solid foundation for what we're going through now. Uh, one of our team members, Ben, just today was his last day. He decided, he and his wife decided they're going to move back to Boston. And um, at least for now, they've decided to seek jobs in that area rather than him continuing to work for us remotely. And it was the most touching stand-up today. It took 15 minutes longer than usual because everybody created a Zoom background that was some kind of clever goodbye image to Ben. Uh and that sort of thing. And everybody talked about um, how he had touched their lives. And it was just, it was very touching. And, you know, I, I look at that and I think, you know, it's, it's probably one of those moments where I think this is what I love about what we've created myself, how satisfying it is to see the this personal outpouring from every member of the team to talk about Ben and um, how they related to him. And of course, <clears throat> Ben is, um, uh, also the proud dad of Menlo baby number 25. Uh, and um, uh, so little James came to stand up with him and uh, sat there and we were all celebrating Ben's or uh, little James's first tooth. Uh, the one right down here, this one right here. Uh, <laughs> so we even know which tooth it was. Uh, so, you know, a lot of neat, uh, neat things. And, um, you know, it's why uh, uh, I think, we're, we're all willing to keep working as hard as we can to get back to some version of Menlo that we just feel as much joy as we did when we were all in the office together. Mm-hmm. We came for the tour a couple of years ago with somebody else's last day. And we, we did that group stand up and we passed the Viking helmet around. Um, it got to that person who was leaving and there were some tears shed, not just from her, but from other people on the team. And I just remember thinking like, wow, what love like in this organization do people have where like everybody is like, I don't know, you can just feel the emotional connection. Even at that point, like I, it was my first time sitting there and meeting all these people the first, you know, 20 minutes we've been there. And I'm like, I just want to like hug everyone because like this is, you just feel like, you know, like you're just that in a big family. And two years ago, that would have been okay. Now we'd be like, get away from me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Virtual and, hug. <laughs> and, and if I recall correctly, it, it was either like somebody told a story or it was that person's turn right before us to, to go in order. So I was oh, like, oh, okay. geez, how do we follow that one up, right? <laughs> yeah. As you're dabbing the tears off your face. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I don't even know this person and I love them. Yeah. 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 So uh, we were talking with um, David Dame not too long ago, and uh, so he's he's a one of the leaders at I think it's Scotia Bank up in up in Canada somewhere. I, I'm not too familiar with Canada; it's just north of here. Um, but but nonetheless, he was talking a lot about how 
this has changed not just the the organizations, but also how leaders lead in, in their organizations. And he was talking specifically about being more deliberate and having more scheduled time to be meeting with people, making sure um, that they knew that he was available for for anything. And I think you've kind of hit on some of that with, you know, the happy hour or the the Thursdays, uh, the Thursday meetings. But but I was kind of curious. Put aside the financials perspective, and obviously there are things that you're worrying about as, as the, the leader of your organization, but I'm curious, what, what are some other things that you're trying to focus on um, to, to be that leader for, for your team members, not necessarily your, your company um, during this time? Yeah, well, as I think you guys know, because you saw it, we've been very much a non-hero-based organization. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's, it's a team. Uh, people aren't lifted up individually and you know these are the heroes and i think it is so tempting for me because i i grew up in a hero-based environment i became the hero i was one of the top leaders you know i probably drowned out people's voices at meetings so i could be seen as this top leader and i have to admit that right now i feel like um i'm being put back in that role personally right as a ceo of a company is struggling Will we have enough business to hang on to everybody on the team? How will we adjust the culture? And, you know, and quite frankly, I mean, there's there's even a part of me that wonders, like, could Venlo help with technology that could help solve COVID-19? I mean, I could be a hero to the world and that sort of thing. And, of course, uh, what that causes me to do personally is just, like, think as hard as I can, like pour water out of my brain onto this rock in front of me, and hopefully it'll just crumble in front of me. And I have to be very careful because I can't solve these problems by myself. And so uh, that was one of the things I talked about with the team yesterday. I said, look, I'm really struggling with this. I don't like it. I want to get back to the way we were, and I know I can't. So I'm thinking this thing to death. I said, that's one of my principles of you know, I, I will wear this problem down with my thought process. But I said my second construct, and this is the important one I think that you're bringing up, is I can't do it alone. I, I need you. I need you, the team around me, to give me ideas to to collaborate with me because that's the kind of environment we've created. And that's where I tend to shine is when I'm reaching out to others and working with them on things. It's actually why I appreciate having these kind of conversations with guys like you because you're bringing in uh, fresh ideas, fresh perspectives from the other people you've talked to. And and I hope I'm doing the same for people who follow me. Um, but, uh, uh, you know, I think this, um, the leadership component of this is, it's not all on me. It, it can't mm-hmm. be. Uh, even when we knew this tsunami was coming, I went to the team, we brought them together on March 16th after uh, the national emergency was declared. And we told the team straight up, we said, we don't know what's coming. It's big. We don't know how big. We don't know how long. There's so much uncertainty. And we looked at them and we said, Menlo can't solve this for you on its own. There are going to have to be some huge government interventions right now because we had watched like every restaurant in Ann Arbor close the week before. Unemployment we knew was skyrocketing, even if the numbers hadn't been showing it at the time. And we said, there's no way that doesn't land on our doorstep. And we said, guys, we just got to let you know, we're not going to solve this on our own. 
So we started cutting pay. We started cutting hours. And we said, we don't know what's coming, but it's got to be big and it's got to come from the government. And that was long before CARES Act was being talked about and PPP loans and all that kind of stuff. And of course, it happened the way we imagined it. I mean, sort of. I couldn't imagine the specifics, but we knew there had to be government interventions. And quite frankly, when the PPP eight-week loan period runs out, um, we said to them again, we said, we don't, you know, we're not going to be in dire circumstances the week after or even the month after. But if this keeps going the way it's going two or three months after, we got to start making some really hard decisions because I don't know how long the government can keep writing, writing $2 trillion checks uh, uh, like, you know, like we tip the, you know, <laughs> tip the waitress at the restaurant or something. I mean, it's just like, this is, it, it doesn't seem like the whole system is going to be able to keep repairing itself, uh, with the constructs we've used to date. And hopefully, obviously we all want to get back to some semblance of working and, you know, we got to figure it out together. How did you make those decisions about like cutting pay, changing structure, things like that? Was that you making those decisions or the teams together? Or how did you how did you facilitate that? Yeah, I think, you know, it is as much as we are this collab, highly collaborative, non-hierarchical organization, there are moments where command and control is going to be of paramount importance. You know, for example, if there was a fire in the building, if I stood up and said, get out, get out now get out right now. You know, I would say it in a way that everybody'd be like, I don't know what's going on, but I'm getting out of the building. We'll figure it out when we're on the sidewalk. Right. Um, and so, uh, there were a handful of us that James and I picked, got together, shared our perspective of what we saw going on. We said, we got to make big decisions and we got to make them now. And they're going to be hard. And, uh, you know, and we didn't want to export our hard decisions to the entire rest of the team. And what we recognized, just to give you a little sense of our thinking there, was um, we knew that hanging, you know, there were there were two primary constructs that were going to allow us to survive. Number one, take care of health and safety of the team. Number two, preserve the business. And um, so on the on the on the first front, it was, you know, get people out of the building as quickly as possible. Let's, let's bug out. You know, and it wasn't going to be tomorrow, wasn't going to be the post-it note on the door like you were describing, but it was like, we're, we're going home, you know, start taking equipment, take what you need, that sort of thing. The second piece on preserve the business was take care of the clients we have, uh, dedicate some staff to prudent marketing and sales efforts, and obviously business operations to make sure, you know, bills are still getting paid and paycheck payroll is still running and that sort of thing. But we said for the time being, uh, you know, we're going to have to take financial measures to preserve cash because cash is, you know, we have no outside investors and Menlo lives off of what it produces. Um, and so uh, we talked about what are some of the different constructs and what we realized was there are, the psyche of our team is that if we said, hey, you guys are getting laid off and everybody else is going to stay the same, there would be this inordinate amount of survivor's guilt in that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because people be like, well, why me? I mean, I'll, I'll take their place, send me in their place. I, I'll be okay. And that sort of thing. And, and we were making decisions on who should stay and who should go based on who we thought would take the best care of the few clients that were keeping things going, because that would again be in the spirit of preserve the business. And so we said, no, we got to cut everybody's pay. 
right down to the lowest level. You know, you probably saw a rolls and levels board when they're yep. there and every, everybody went right down to the lower left-hand corner of associate one pay, which is a dramatic drop. It meant the top leaders on the team were taking the biggest hit and the people who were closer to that were taking the smallest hit. Uh, but we knew that would be right in the minds of everybody at Menlo. It's like, okay, we're in this, we're in this together, right? Uh, the founders went to zero. So the team, I had team members come up and say, wow, we really appreciate the, the, what that means to all of us that you guys were willing to cut your pay to zero in this time. And so, you know, we sent out, a, a, I think we, we made those decisions in the morning. We delivered the news that afternoon. So there was no languishing about, is this the right thing to do? And we looked at them and we said, we don't know what's coming, but here's what we're going to do. And we're going to do it right now. And, um, uh, so, you know, I think, uh, there are times where even in a non-hierarchical model, there is a time where uh, the top people have to step in like James and I and say, this is what we're doing. And I think that was a great relief to the team uh, because at least there was that kind of certainty in terms mm -hmm. of, okay, now we know what's going on. We know how to prepare and that sort of thing. And uh, yeah. So I was going to ask, um, how did you come up with those two kind of guiding light or those, those two goals that you were going after? Yeah, it was, it was pretty quick in the beginning of that meeting. It was like, you know, what are our, you know, highest priorities as we're making these decisions? And, uh, and we knew health and safety, given everything the world was going through, was of paramount importance. I mean, the last thing on earth that James and I wanted was that we were going to you know, we're going to tough it out to the last minute and bring everybody together. It's like, we're looking at our team, like this is the opposite of what the world is demanding right now. So let's, let's be safe. Uh, let's keep everybody healthy. Um, Cause goodness knows. I mean, you know, we, we know people who with their, their family lives, their, their kids, all that kind of stuff. Um, and, uh, and then the second piece was if we don't preserve the business, we don't, None of the other stuff matters, right? Um, and then, uh, then the question was, beyond the billable work we have, what other things should we take care of? And we said, look, we can't stop sales. We can't stop marketing. We can't stop business operations. We can just focus them in on the minimum we need to keep the business going forward. And that was those were kind of the, the, the four main principles of just safety, preserve the business, which meant cash. Uh, third was um, uh, prudent sales and marketing efforts. And then the fourth was prudent business operations. And those popped out pretty quickly, uh, you know, just from that discussion. And then the, then the rest of the discussion that morning was just, so how exactly are we going to do this? And we went through a few iterations of the possibilities and we settled on, on this. And we just, you know, and I think the team probably most appreciated mm -hmm. that we just didn't languish on this stuff. And we came, we told them we had a big discussion. One of my, one of the guys in the team says, given what you're doing, I'm not going to survive two weeks, you know, in my current financial condition. And, you know, and Menlo is the kind of place where in a public setting, one of our team members was willing to be that vulnerable with everybody else. And um, as he started to figure things out, like going to Ford and saying, Hey, can you delay my car payment for a few months? And they would, um, you know, no relief coming from their uh, landlord where they had an apartment there. But as they started to learn of things they could do for themselves, they started sharing that with the number of team members who might be in not quite as dire or a situation as he was. 
but uh, you know, the spirit of I'm going to share what I'm learning with others, Dave, because this is what I'm doing to survive. Hmm. I find this really interesting. You know, oftentimes when we talk uh, to organizations and we talk about Menlo having financial transparency, salary transparency, they're like, that would never work. Like how like we're giving the controls to everybody else that does the work. The, no way. Um, but I think this story really illustrates that like you still have it, but you're ma- you still have the control to make a decision as the leader you and James yeah. do, but you're giving visibility and transparency into it. So everybody can have shared ownership of where you're going and you don't have to like tippy toe around like why you're making it. Like you have to make hard decisions. And, and I think probably everybody saw what, you know, the writing on the wall and you could show them the financials and be like, this is what's happening. And we're looking, here's what's important to us is, you know, maintaining the business and keeping everybody safe and healthy. And, and here's our best approach that we think to handle this. Let us know if you have other ideas, you know? And, and, I, and I think that's, um, I don't know, it's, it's a good, um, it's a great story to uh, maybe give people some relief on the, you know, salary transparency, the financial transparency, like, you know, myths yeah. that are out there. Yeah. I'm, I have to admit, uh, while I would never want something like this to happen, obviously none of us would, um, we are now recognizing how powerful all those things you guys saw on the tour where you thought, well, that's, that's really interesting. That's really clever. That's, that's compelling. Uh, I, I am fascinated that they do it like that. And, you know, and we probably share those things that we do. And we tell you what, theoretically, at least why we do them, man, theory hit, hit the road right in this moment. Uh, and I suddenly I'm like, Oh my gosh, well, you know, you could never pick pandemic as the thing that's going to put everything to the test. I'm just so thankful we have all this stuff in place already because as you're saying now, when we go out and share, it isn't like this shockwave of, Oh, I had no idea that's how the business ran or how much money we needed to run payroll or how much rent was every month. Like the team totally understands. And I won't say that the understanding is 100% throughout the team. The data is there for all of them to understand. And I think even now they recognize more why we were doing these things in the past, because now they can help us think about the business as we go forward. It's kind of funny. We had a conversation with one of our big, big clients, uh, you know, big corporation clients about what we went through. And I think we told them kind of like that day, we said, yeah, this morning we made these decisions and this afternoon we're sharing them with the team. And they look, you're sharing this information with the team. Like, well, yeah. And they're like, oh, wow, that would be really hard for us. And, you know, and this goes back to a basic managerial edict I've had in my head for decades now because of the way we run Memo. If you don't share stuff with your team, they make stuff up in its absence. Mm-hmm. I've never seen humans make up a better story than reality. They always make up a worse story. <laughs> right? Yeah. Like, oh, my gosh, the world's ending and we're going to go out of business tomorrow. Like, no, we're not, actually. I mean, we were literally talking yesterday in our Thursday with lunch and Rich and James um, that, you know, we, we told them exactly how much money we had in the bank in cash. We told them exactly how much receivables we had. We told them which receivables we think are going to be collectible in this amount of time. We told them what's in the pipeline. We talked about how big those projects were and everything uh, because, you know, uh, the reality is they understand how this all works. They understand what payroll cycles look like. They understand what rent 
cycles look like. They understand how much our health insurance costs and all that sort of thing. And, uh, you know, and again, we, we don't like to lead with fear for sure. Mm -hmm. Um, but there are things we should be afraid of, uh, you know, going out of business is one of them. Keep you know, having somebody get sick is another one. I mean, those are real things we should be afraid of. Right. I think the thing that I'm hearing here is, um, it's some people might say it's culture. I would say it's more mindset that you have as an organization of we're problem solving people. Uh, we're going to have rapid feedback loops and we're going to learn and do, and we're going to take a team approach to everything. I think a lot of times what I heard from some people on the tour, like when we go through it, they might think, Oh, I want to steal this practice or this practice. Mm-hmm. The practices themselves don't matter that much. It's the mindset behind them and what you're trying to accomplish. And then figuring out a way to do that. The how isn't as important as the why. And, and I think that's why Menlo will recover from this is because your why is so strong. Um, you know, providing joy to the world. <laughs> uh, so I'm, 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 thank you for sharing so much with us. Um, but I, I really, really believe like companies that have the mindset about solving problems, putting people first, um, they're going to, they're going to find a way through this. They really are. Yeah. And I know for me personally, I'm desperately personally trying to hang on to everything that is memorable. I wanted to go back to exactly the way it was six weeks, eight weeks ago. And I know that isn't going to happen in the next eight weeks unless there's some miracle drug that <laughs> suddenly pops onto the horizon and like, oh, tomorrow everybody takes this drug and everybody's fine, right? That Maybe that could happen. Uh, that would be neat for all of us, of course. Um, but, uh, but I have to recognize that there's going to be pieces of Menlo that maybe change forever, right? Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I don't know even exactly what they are yet. Uh, I don't know what the implications are for our physical space, for the way we work. I know that there are certain principles of how we work that will never change. The mm-hmm. transparency, the openness, the collaboration, the teamwork, the trust, uh, the belief that uh, each individual person has something unique to bring to the table. Uh, you know, w- we have so many constructs, as you say, so many practices that feed into those basic principles. And it's the practices that are going to change. It's not the principles that are going to change. Right. Yeah. That's awesome. Um, I have another question for you. So oftentimes when I'm talking to people about Menlo and they're like, wow, that sounds like pretty amazing. How big is this company Menlo? And I tell them, well, they're just under, you know, a hundred people. And they're like, oh, well, of course that would work. Like it's a hundred person company. It will never work right. in my large organization. Sure. Yep. What would you say to somebody who says something like that? Yeah, well, we have seen, uh, I mean, number one, there was a company we trained uh, in our methods, our practices, probably 15 years ago now, uh, Nationwide Financial down in Columbus, Ohio. And it was one of these things where one of their VPs had to run 400 of their people through a set of training. They needed to get, you know, get the checkbox of agile training. And, um, and we, we ran 400 of their people through our training classes as quick as we could. It was, it was kind of fun and, but insane at the same time at 25 people a shot within about a one month period. And quite frankly, we thought at that point it, it was, you know, it was a typical corporate checklist item and changing as, you know, you're sort of suggesting in your question, changing a large organization is really, really hard. Mm-hmm. 
And as the years went by, we hadn't gotten back down to uh, to nationwide to see what was going on, but we kept hearing these stories. We kept there's something. Have you heard what's going on down in nationwide? And and uh, and I'm going to be very clear here. What happened down there, we will take some small piece of credit for, but as they say, success has many parents and failure is an orphan. Uh, mm-hmm. We are one of the many hundreds of parents of nationwide success. But a few years later, maybe four or five years later, I was down at a, giving a keynote down in Florida with Tom Pater, who I didn't know at all. I didn't meet him during his time there. But I was up first. I gave my talk. And then Tom comes up and he puts up his first opening slide. And it says, Tom Pater, IT uh, director at Nationwide Financial. And I'm like, oh, well, this is going to be an interesting story to hear. I can't wait to hear this because I haven't been back there. I don't know what's happened. And Tom got up there and he said, hey, listen, I want to just say something about the first speaker as it relates to the, what I'm going to show you today. He said, we wouldn't be where we are today without Memo's influence. So what I'm going to share with you today began with them. And again, you know, Tom would say it too. Yes, we had an influence. Were we 100%? Absolutely not. Uh, like everybody else, uh, Tom himself, a fascinating leader, uh, grabbed on to Agile, grabbed on to Lean, put them together in a really powerful way. But we went, you know, after that, I said, Tom, I got to come see it. You know, can I come back? And we did. And it was amazing what they had done. I mean, you were seeing a version of Menlo on whole floors of hundreds of people, several floors in a big building in downtown Columbus. And so my statement to people who say, I don't think this could work in a large organization. I can see why it works for little Menlo. I say, yep, it works for us at 50-ish people. And it works for nationwide at 10,000. So it either works at 50 or 10,000. I'm not sure it works anywhere else. And of course, then they look at me like, what? How can that be? So the fact of the matter is, if, if we were a thousand people, Memo would be different. Mm-hmm. Does that invalidate what we've accomplished at 50? Of course not. It just says at every size you're at, you've got unique problems to solve. Go solve them. Go figure out how to do it. But what I encourage people to do is don't do it with bureaucracy. Don't do it with soul crushing procedures and don't do it with fear. Do it with purpose. Do it with practices that lift the human energy of our team and decrease the meeting load that reduce the fear that's operating in your organization. And if you do that, those principle-based movements, uh, you know, I think too often people are when they come on a tour or they take classes from somebody like you or you get coached by you, they're looking for that. Just tell me the one thing to do with it. It makes everything better. It's like, yep. I uh, just want the playbook. You're <laughs> just kidding, break out you're the playbook. You know, look, I, I, I you know, just take a page out of any of our books who have families. That'd be like saying, tell me the one true way to raise a child. Right. Like, well, first, tell me about your child. Well, no, I mean, the general principles of parenting should be universal, shouldn't they? Well, yeah, there should be. There should be love. There should be, you know, caring. There should be encouragement and that sort of thing. But tell me about your kid first, right? Because you know, do they like to play sports or do they like to read? Do they, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, that sort of thing. And so I think, you know, organizational design and development is the same thing. Uh, you know, we often ask people when they come in and say, so tell us what we should be doing. Tell us what the key practices are. Mm-hmm. And we turn around and say, so what problems are you having? 
what do you mean? Like, what problem are you trying to solve? Well, we need to be agile. No, agile, first of all, agile is a concept, not a thing. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, yeah, but we want the practices. Well, why? Well, because right. we want to be able to say we, we, we're agile now. It's like, yeah, but what problem are you trying to solve? And it really flummoxes a lot of people. They get frustrated with us. They're like, just tell us what the practices are. And like, okay, we can show you what we do. You know, it's like a lot of, we have a very unique interviewing practice that maybe you heard about. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a group interview. We pair people during the interview with another candidate. We have more 20 minutes together and then we switch the pairs uh, so that they get three pairings before they go home. And then we decide who comes and people are like, oh, we should copy that. And like, well, maybe, but do you do understand the interview you just heard described simulates the work environment you just toured through? So if you pair people during your interview, but don't pair them when you work, they'll be like, well, what did the interview have to do with joining here at Menlo? It's just so incredibly consistent. Like, no, you're experiencing what it's like to work here. We're experiencing you working in an environment like ours. You know, and so if you don't align your HR practices with the culture you're trying to create and the practices you use, you're screwed, right? Uh, and so, um, yeah, I, I think uh, you, you clearly you got me on a soapbox here, and I don't even remember what the question <laughs> was anymore. Oh, I know it was about large. It's not a large organizations. Yeah, yeah. How do you think <laughs> yes. and, and the fact of the matter is, I mean, I've seen Mass Mutual Corporation, 180 year old life insurance company that I write about. They let me write their story in the second book, uh, Chief Joy Officer about the transformation they made after hearing just a talk from me and the transformation they made within six months inside of a 180-year-old $30 billion a year life insurance company or General Electric Corporation in Schenectady that made massive changes based on just a couple of talks. I got to start charging more for these talks, clearly. <laughs> but, but the fact of the matter is, you know, and let's face it, I don't care how what size your organization is, it is always composed of small units, units mm-hmm. of 50 or 60 people. And I think too often as humans, we get stuck where we're like, well, if it doesn't change the whole organization overnight, then I'm not sure it's worth me changing my 50 unit team and how they practice. Like, no, actually, it's really worth to change your team because your life will get better. Right. And you can start to be an example for the rest of your corporation in many ways, like Menlo is for the rest of the world who comes and visits us. Mm -hmm. Right. I don't think anybody, and we tell people this when they come, I don't know if they've said this to you. We tell them right up front when they come on a tour, understand our expectation isn't that we're going to tell you that we have found the one true way to organize human beings and that you should copy it and take it home with you. What we think is valuable about a visit to Menlo is come see a living, breathing, working experiment in organizational design and start to get inspired, take away ideas that you might have, but you're going to have to translate them back into your own organization. Right. Yeah. It's the, it's the concepts and the principles that you were talking about that are so important. And it's like, it's really easy to teach somebody how to do something but teaching them how to th- how to think differently or how how to apply different principles that's really difficult when your pressures of the world come in and teams and all that other stuff right and yep. i think and i think you know what i what i love about menlo and i love what you're just talking about even like the hiring process like simulate what 
what do you what do you want to simulate here? What are you trying to accomplish? And going into it with the why and the start and then figuring out what practice you're going to apply there um, is so different for every organization. And so being um, free to experiment, which you do so much at Menlo, um, I think is, is so amazing because if you if you just go back like to where this all started, like we go back to the Agile Manifesto, the very first sentence that everybody always forgets about, it says, we are learning how to develop software um, by doing, by bet- something yeah. along those lines, like, but, but better yeah. by doing it. And it's like, it's about the journey. It's not about like the destination and you're going to get there through doing it. And that's uh, one of the things that I think is great at Menlo. And, and I think that's that's the lesson to learn from anyone that's trying to steal something um, from Menlo is like, how do we how do we learn from the journey and how do we get on this journey? Yeah, right. and this this is actually why I was so interested in that meeting that you just talked about earlier was you you gravitated towards the goal first, and I think most people are are gravitating towards the the practices or the tactics without understanding the strategy of why are they doing this? What what is the outcome of it that we're trying to achieve? You started with the outcome, preserve the business and keep people safe. That's our that's our objective that we're trying to move towards. Mm-hmm. Now let's talk tactics. Yep. But so often when we're, and especially for training, right? I, I get training is part of a change transition, right? Because you need to build the knowledge to build ability to, mm-hmm. to, to get them there. Yep. But understand the goal isn't scrum. The goal isn't more scrum teams. The goal isn't pairing. It's X. What is X in your organization? Then we can start to have a conversation about different ways of getting us there. And what I heard was part of Menlo's culture is to start with this discovering X, figuring out what what is X, why is X so important? Then we can start to have the conversation around the tactics and how we can move towards that. Yep. Yeah, I think probably you guys have heard like everybody else, the, the scrum butt methodologies. Yep. I prefer the scrum and methodologies, right? Mm-hmm. Because there is no set of practices, there's no framework out there that solves all of the challenges that a human organization has. And so we should, as leaders, we should be borrowing from everything and figuring out how to uniquely knit them together to make a cohesive system that involves finance, involves HR, involves you know, in our case, software design and development and quality assurance and delivery. Uh, but, you know, it also portends IT and facilities and all the things that revolve around making marketing, sales, all the things that make working a business. I'm not, if I took a scrum, scrum class and got all the certifications, it wouldn't teach me about any of those things. Mm-hmm. Does that make right. scrum incomplete and unimportant? Of course not. Right. It just has a, you know, those practices actually have some good mental frameworks in them. But for me, the principles of any kind of methodology, in particular Scrum, fall into general principles of systems thinking, short Mm -hmm. communication and feedback loops, the ability to adapt a plan as you go forward based on what you're learning along the way. Those are the most important principles behind this. You know, it's Mm -hmm. funny how many companies we run into who, they, the the first time they come visit, they're they're looking at us and they're like, "Not sure. Is this, <laughs> is this Scrum? Is this extreme programming? Is this Agile? Is this Lean? Is this design thinking? Is this like, like uh huh? What? Which one is it? Well, kind of all of them and little pieces and parts of all of them. And I could, you know, early on, I loved my co-founder James because he's so contrarian. People would say, "Well." Uh, 
I see you don't apply the principles of the Project Management Institute to what you do here. So what does James do? He goes out and gets his PMP, his Project Management Professional Certification. And then the, anytime anybody asks us about PMI at, uh, practices on a tour, we'd say, oh, let us show you our work authorization board and our work packages and our work breakdown structure and our scheduled performance index. And, and they're like, well, but no, this is agile. This isn't PMI. It's like, no, actually it's, it's PMI it, to a, to a T, not even, not even the PMI that reinvented itself with a PMI agile certification. PMI, one of its core concepts and principles was something called progressive elaboration. Well, if those two words bolted together is the essence of Agile. That's what Agile's doing. It's progressively elaborating what the solution is as you learn. The way people have implemented the practices of PMI is what has destroyed most organizations. No, we need big three-ring binders. We need committees and policies and meetings and forms to sign. It's like, if you go back and read the PMBOK, it doesn't say any of that. You know, people go, well, where's your documentation? Like, let me show you the 10,000 story cards we got for this. Let me give you the principles behind which work gets done here and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's why I love Gene Kim's prod, uh, you know, books, uh, uh, which, by the way, if, if you've listened to that one, it's 14 hours worth of listening, which is probably yeah. the more typical uh, book. So. Is is that the accelerate you're talking about, or um, uh, Gene Kim, uh, the Phoenix Project, and I, okay. uh, the Unicorn be, Project? I haven't yeah. listened to that one yet. Oh, that's it's really good. Time. I'll yeah, I'm glad you to do that one. It's um, it's more technical. It's on okay. you know the developer side of the fence. Like the other one was more on the operation side. Um, told from that point of view, and I, I really enjoy it. I think that um, I don't know. I think it's going to be the the goal, like the goal was, you know, uh-huh. back in like yep. the 80s and 90s, I think the Unicorn Project will be that type of book going forward in the I'm sure. year 2020. So, yeah. <laughs> I, my blood oh. pressure goes up as I listen to the Phoenix Project. Like, I've lived that life. I'm that guy, you know, and I had Brent on my team and I needed to figure out how to get around that hero because he was in everything and he was the only one who knew how to do stuff. So, yeah. That's great. Well, Rich, it's been awesome having you. I know we're uh, we're past our time box a little bit. Um, is there anything at this time you want to plug or promote um, on the podcast? Well, you know, typically what I will tell you is that um, I tell people if they're interested in what we talked about, come visit. Yeah, those are a little harder right now, but stay tuned. We're figuring out how to do virtual tours and uh, you know, some of our classes will break up into smaller pieces and deliver that the way uh, they will adapt and that sort of thing. But I would say if people are interested in learning more about us, I've written two books on the subject. Joy Inc. came out in 2013 and Chief Joy Officer just came out uh, at the end of 2018. And so uh, if you want a deep dive, those are probably the best places to get them. Awesome. Well, thanks again for joining us. This has been an awesome conversation. Uh, we really appreciate you you coming on the, on the podcast. Oh, this was fun for me too. I really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you for listening to the Agile Wire. We are consistently inspecting and adapting ourselves. We would appreciate feedback at feedback at theagilewire.com or on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play Store. See you next time.